Welcome to another jerryfarney.com podcast. This is episode number 12. Today I have with me a very special guest, uh, Dr. Ray Vrabel. Ray is president and principal consulting of Vrabel Consulting Incorporated. And before that, Ray was the senior director of medication safety system strategy with OmniCell. Ray and I have known each other for a while. Uh, we seem to both be interested in, in patient safety and specifically in the IV room at the moment. Uh, Ray and I have had some great discussions over the past few years, and while we may not see eye to eye on every single point, uh, we are definitely in agreement that uh, something should be done in the IV room. Uh, welcome to the show, Ray. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Jerry. How are you today? Yeah, I'm doing great. Why don't you take a second and just tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Well, I've been around. That's the easiest thing I can say. Um, I'm pushing... Uh, 45 plus years being licensed as a pharmacist in the state of California. And during that time period, I've practiced in nine medical centers in six states, and I've worked for two of the leading uh, automation vendors in the country for the last 10 plus years of my career. And I've had um, stints in hospitals anywhere ranging from 100 bed to um, several thousand or approaching couple thousand when I was the director of uh, hospital pharmacy services at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. I was reading your bio on LinkedIn and I noticed that you had been in several hospitals and, and worked quite a bit uh, in kind of the technology world. So I also, I spend a lot of time like you in chat rooms and, and doing things around ASHP mid-year in the summer meeting and things like that. We, we tend to run in similar circles, not on purpose, but kind of that's where we end up. And I've noticed over the past couple of years specifically, you've been very aggressive and very interested in what's going on in the IV room. And can you tell me a little bit about why you're so interested in the IV room at the moment and kind of why your interest has turned that direction? Actually, it's very simple. Um, first of all, my entire career, I've been interested in workflow in general, uh, how people manage workflow, uh, the processes involved in workflow and later in my career in automation. And uh, everything was sort of triggered in terms of focusing on what's happening in the IV room. Back in, uh, I believe it's December 3rd, 2014. That's when a significant medication error occurred in the hospital in Bend, Oregon, where a patient accidentally received the neuromuscular blocking agent rocuronium instead of the ordered phosphenatoin anticonvulsant. And what struck me was that here we are in 2014 when that happened in hospitals in the most high risk area within the hospital being the pharmacy IV room where we are not using technology that was actually introduced into the market, I believe on June 25th, 1974, if my recollection is correct. That's when a grocery store in Ohio first scanned a package of Wrigley gum at the point of sale. And here we are X number of years later, I guess 40 years later in a hospital 
where they were not using any type of technology in the hospital pharmacy, and yet they had a bedside barcoding system for nurses. I don't know this for a fact, but they probably had barcode scanning in their gift shop at the point of sale, but they were not using at least even barcode scanning in the hospital pharmacy. That's that's Now, that's an interesting point, and I want to come back a little bit to the technology, but you brought up something that is, um, I think it's often overlooked by people. For whatever reason, the IV room seems to be the wild, wild west. It's kind of the last frontier of where technology is entering the, the hospital. When you look at kind of the standard pharmacy operations, there is technology being used in pharmacies. You have the electronic health records, you have the pharmacy information system, uh, hospitals are using carousels and packagers, and even barcode scanning to track inventory. But for some reason in the IV room, it hasn't really been used. And while there are a large number of, uh, I'm sure there are a large number of errors committed in the IV room, fortunately not all those are detrimental. But how dangerous do you think the IV room really is? I mean, you mentioned one in Bend, Oregon. I mean, like that's the pinnacle of what can go wrong. You know, that's the Swiss cheese model. Everything went wrong. You had a bag that was labeled correctly, entered correctly, and it was, it was made wrong. It made it to the patient. The nurse looked at it, hung it, and, and the patient died. So how dangerous do you think just the IV room itself is? Well, I think the fact that an error like that can occur easily within what is otherwise a progressive regional hospital in Oregon that is that does have an EHR, does have CPOE, does, does have bedside barcode scanning. And an event like this happens where two days later they have to take the lady off of life support and they pronounce her dead. I think that sort of says it all to me that with each IV made, there is an opportunity. And some would say it's low risk. Well, you can't tell that to the family members of this patient up in Bend, Oregon, because it was fatal. And I'm sure that there's everything in between that kind of event and others where things are just kind of off by a few milliliters or whatever, to um, I'm sure we make 90% of them perfectly, 90% plus perfectly correct. But the difference is that where we've gone to great lengths to make sure we get the colase in the right bin, in the right automated dispensing cabinet, we've failed at doing anything similar in the IV room. And in terms of the colase, does it really matter if a mistake is made? Probably a little bit in terms of an incident report, but in terms of patient consequence, not very much. But in the IV room, anything is a potential problem. If you don't get them with the wrong drug, if you have a break in sterile technique, you might contaminate them and cause a hospital infection, which could eventually kill the patient also. So it's, re it's really a hotbed of where things can go wrong. And I think it's, you know, to me, I call it pharmacy's dirty little secret from the standpoint of Everybody doesn't really know what goes on in this room. Um, and from that standpoint, I think more people should be nervous other than just me and you. Right. I, I agree with you 100%, actually. And it's interesting to me that for whatever reason, it's taken longer than normal uh, to get around to the IV room. I have my opinions on why that's the case. But why do you think that is? Why do you think it's taken so long knowing? I mean, we've known for years. I mean, the, the Flynn article on the number of errors that we commit in the IV room came out in, was it, 97. And that showed that we 
we make a lot of mistakes, right? We make about one out of every 11 things wrong somehow, some way. And some of those are detrimental, some of them aren't. But the important thing is, is that we're making a large number of mistakes. So with that in mind, and knowing that the IV room can be the location of the most hazardous types of drugs, including chemotherapy and some very dangerous routes of administration like intrathecal meds, why? Why, why is it taking so long? Why, why, what are your thoughts on that? Why haven't we done a better job and moved faster? I think it's because we've been doing the same thing the same way for so long that we're just kind of numb to what goes on in the IV room. When I first uh, made an IV in a laminar airflow hood back in 1970, there's not much that has changed since then um, other than I wasn't fully garbed when I made my IV back in 1970. But other than that, it just hasn't changed. And there's some sense, I think, that within the pharmacy community, that the people we have working in our IV room, not just any IV room, but our IV room, that they're well-trained and they don't make mistakes. So we don't need to do anything to uh, make the process any more difficult. And I think, I think they're fooling themselves. And I think there's ample evidence that they are fooling themselves. Agreed. Now, um, so I'm the first guy in line to say that pharmacy is over-regulated. I just think we have so many regulations. When I go into a pharmacy these days, they're more worried about covering their own butt with documentation and regulation that they don't spend the time they need worrying about everything else. So like, in my opinion, if you do the right thing, then everything else kind of work out. It kind of It'll handle itself. But in this case, I'm almost to the point where I think some regulatory body is going to have to step in and say that you have to do this, whether it's a uh, somebody like Medicare that comes in and says, you know, you're going to have to use one of these systems to bill for something or whether it's an organization uh, like JCO or maybe even a state board of pharmacy. I don't think they have to specify specifically what technology you have to use, but I think it's possible at some point they're going to have to recommend in general some type of technology be used in the IV room before it takes off. Do you think that's true? Well, I do, and I think we have a great example of that. It's called uh, USP 797. Back in 2004, we had this significant increase in requirements within hospital pharmacies to make sure that the production of compounded sterile products were done in what is effectively a pseudo manufacturing clean room environment within the hospital setting. So that today, um, even, even and, and we did that even though I'm not sure there were a lot of well done reports of significant problems in your everyday hospital pharmacy of sterility problems, but regardless, we had the 797 regulations imposed upon us in hospital pharmacy. I think that demonstrates how regulations can cause a significant change in practice. If you look at an IV room 20 years ago from today, it is the difference between night and day. Unfortunately, that particular USP requirement only focused on how sterile, how clean is this product that's being repaired? 
And there was absolutely no focus on how well, i.e. correctly, was that IV prepared. So now we have every, any, with every hospital using and following USP requirements, we have very high quality, sterile, compounded products coming out of the hospital pharmacies. Unfortunately, as evidence in the Bend, Oregon case, we have no way to assure that they're being properly prepared. And I think that is the critical problem. I, I really don't understand why USP had to only focus on the sterility piece and not the workflow piece from a quality standpoint. We've got half of the quality, but quite honestly, we've only done the easier half of the quality because problem that occurred in Bend, Oregon is much more likely to kill a patient than getting something that was slightly contaminated in an, from an IV additive room in a pharmacy. Yeah, so I guess they had to start somewhere. Maybe they, maybe they chose the low-hanging fruit. Who knows? I wasn't on the committee. I don't know uh, what their thought process was. I would like to see them add something in the future, although the more people I talk to, the more I think that is less likely. I thought at one point that it might happen. But I'm starting to think that it might not, depending on the direction that they're they're currently going. So we'll have to wait and see with the next release of 797. I'm hoping they'll put something in there, to your point, something uh, in regards to how things are made and the quality and uh, the assurance that something is appropriately made. USP 797 addresses the concept of making something correctly, but they do so in a a very vague manner. There's actually a portion of 797 that says, you know, you're responsible for ensuring that this is made correctly with the right amount and the right label. But it's, you know, it's it's one or two sentences lost in the in the overall scheme of this this very complex and messy uh, document. What's interesting, actually, I'm going to take a quick sidebar here. What's interesting is 797 itself is actually really small. It's a really small document, but it references lots of other things within the USP world, and it it's put together in such a haphazard way. When you read through it, it's just, it's all over the board. I can see why people are confused. And 800 is a little cleaner. I've read through 800 a couple of times now. It's a little cleaner, uh, but it's still, uh, actually, it's much cleaner. I take that back. It's a much better, it's more well-written than than USB 797. And I hope they move that direction when they go with the newer version, which isn't, isn't due out now for, you know, probably another year or so. But let's come back to the technology for a minute. We have, and you mentioned it, we have barcode scanning. It's been around forever. It's used at the bedside. Uh, it's become the norm at the bedside, as a matter of fact. It's become a best practice. It's also become a best practice to use it in pharmacies just to track your, your general inventory. You, you know, you mentioned Colace, DocuSate. I mean, we're tracking our, our DocuSate capsules from the time they come in the back door until the time they reach a, a cabinet or a patient. We also have things. We have the photo uh, imaging to help us... Uh, look at things from a distance so the pharmacists aren't moving in and out of the IV room and performing a double check. And we have things like gravimetrics. What do you think the, where do you come down in terms of the technology, in terms of what do you think the minimum requirements are versus where you think we should go? I mean, it's always easier to say, you know, let's do this minimum set of requirements first and get people on board and then go to something where we really think it should be. And in, in pharmacy, that may take us five to 10 years. Who knows? We're a slow-moving group. 
But what do you think? What do you think about the technology and which technologies we should require as a minimum versus where we should go with this uh, eventually? And now I want to jump back in and follow up on the, the USP 797 and then come back to your question. Okay. We've talked about USP and its implications on the sterility of the compounded products within the IV room. But the other factor of USP is that I think it has had some unintended consequences in the IV room from a medication safety of the process itself. Because with USP and all of the garbing requirements, it has caused some hospitals who used to have a pharmacist in the IV room checking the technician's work on a regular basis to actually pull them out of the IV room and have checking occur after the fact using pullback syringes and whatever other non-automated method they were going to use for checking. So that I think that USP has actually maybe contributed to the problem that we have today in the IV room, and it may have also inhibited the implementation of automation because it made the IV room so much more complex than it ever was. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because there are unintended consequences to a lot of this stuff. And you hit on something that's an, another total discussion, but I'll say the same thing has happened with electronic health records. Things have gotten immensely uh, more complicated with some things that have been beneficial with an EHR, for example. So, so, so there's some things that unintendedly have have been problematic because of the implementation of an electronic health record, even though there's some benefit on the other side. So I, I and I get your point, and that's absolutely correct. The the process, quote unquote, the process of making a IV room uh, a sterile compound in the IV room is more complex than it used to be. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Just the documentation process these days is much more complex than it used to be. The garbing process, for example, how you can move in and out of the clean room is is very different. I mean, I uh, haven't been a pharmacist as long as you have, but when I started my career back in the uh, mid-90s, I was making IV, uh, IVs on, well, basically in a hood that was just stuffed in the corner of the pharmacy. I didn't garb. I washed my hands and I went and made the IV product. So things have changed dramatically, and you're correct. Uh, you either are putting a pharmacist in the IV room or you're figuring out a different way to do things. And it, it can definitely be dangerous, especially, and you hit on something that is a pet peeve of mine, and that's the pullback method. I still see pharmacies doing it today, and there's just, quite frankly, there's no excuse for it. Another possible example of an unintended consequence of technology, maybe it goes back to the Bend, Oregon case. I don't have this information directly, but I was told that this hospital was actually using an IV workflow automation system in their IV room. And that with the hospital's desire to become compliant with meaningful use requirements, they implemented another version of their EHR. And that new version of their EHR was unable to interface to that IV workflow solution, which put the pharmacy back in the dark ages in terms of doing IVs the old way without the benefit of, of barcode check, checking and uh, workflow image checking that they had prior to the hospital switching out their EHR. And I could, I would argue that if that is true, that that's another example of an unintended consequence of putting in an EHR that had an effect down in the pharmacy to the negative uh, 
impact on a particular patient. Yes, and to your point, um, I was uh, I was told the same thing. I haven't been able to get verification from the hospital. They won't uh, they won't comment on it, but. I have heard uh, that they, in fact, were using an IV workflow management system, and um, there were some problems with it, so they weren't using some of the functionality, and that's how we ended up where we are. So in the case of the bend organ, the simplest technology, in this case barcode scanning, would have prevented that. Technician would have gone to pull uh, phosphenitoin, would have pulled the rocuronium by mistake. How they did that, I will never know. but they would have scanned the rocuronium and that would have been the end of it. It would have said, hey, you got the wrong drug. I mean, that's the simplest form of it right there. That's where, that's the beginning of catching the error. And then there should have been other other steps during the process. For example, when a pharmacist goes to check it, and <laughs> how do you see a bottle of rocuronium and a label that says phosphenitoin and not catch that? It's beyond me. But once that IV left the pharmacy, there was no way for the nurse to know what's in the bag. They're both clear. They're both in a bag. There, there's no way for the nurse to know. And in that case, once it leaves the pharmacy, it's over. I think there's a lot of information about the Bend, Oregon case that have yet to be disclosed. I agree. And uh, from what little that I know, based on just discussion within the pharmacy community, this has to be the classic Swiss cheese model where there were multiple things that were not done correctly by many different healthcare professionals throughout the process. It's just that the pharmacy technician made the worst of the errors and the one that ultimately resulted in the demise of the patient. But there were other places where the system failed them and caused this problem to happen without allowing for any recovery by the hospital to save the patient's life. Precisely. So I think it will be very interesting when all of the details, and I hope they do, come out. Um, To your point, as as you and I have talked about this before, I think that barcode scanning of ingredients is the bare minimum that should be done, not only in the IV room, but Anytime pharmacy puts a label on something where they used ingredients, whether it's in their outpatient pharmacy or in their comp- their non-sterile compounding error, or they're putting patient-specific IV labels on premixed bags, that they should be barcode scanning the ingredients to make sure that the ingredients match whatever is going to be labeled by that product. And... I think that should be done in 100% of the cases of anything made in the IV room. And while I like some of the solutions that are available on the market that include barcode scanning, if you go into those hospitals that are using them, they they may not be using them for all of their IVs production. They've falsely come to the conclusion that maybe we'll just use it for higher risk types of compounding, in which case... Again, going back to the Bend, Oregon case, that would not have been considered to be a high-risk compounding situation. And if you were selectively using your IV workflows management solution to determine which IVs you would prepare using that system or not, you wouldn't have used it for that particular preparation. So I think barcode scanning of everything is a minimum. Right. And I agree. I've actually used that same example with people who talk about using it for high-risk drugs. In the case of the Bend Oregon, the phosphenitoin, 
it's not a high risk. It's not on a high risk drug list. So in theory, you wouldn't have been using it for that compound anyway. And that happens to be a compound that uh, cost a patient their life in probably one of the more horrific ways possible if the patient was awake. I mean, that has got to be just an awful, awful way to go. Uh, you're wide awake and you're suffocating. That is just uh, the thought of that is, is mind numbing. So what do you think of, uh, obviously, we're both in total agreement about the barcode scanning being a minimum. I'm right there with you. I agree 100%. What do you think about the use of uh, gravimetrics during the process, in, uh, not in lieu of barcoding, but in addition to barcoding? I guess my opinion about gravimetrics is, uh, other than barcoding, gravimetrics is probably the next most important thing that should be done to confirm what a technician has done during the IV workflow process. I think those two things are critical. And I think the broader discussion that we could have is whether or not the existing solutions that have, have been made available to the pharmacy community, whether or not they were really designed to meet pharmacies' needs, or were they designed to meet the needs of the people who were putting these solutions together, whose goal was to have a marketable product to sell into that environment? Partially, I say that because barcode scanning is cheap. It's very easy to do. The use of terminal gravimetrics to determine what whether or not something's been put into a bag or not, and how much, has been technology that we've been using since we began making TPNs with compounders, you know, 20 plus years ago. And it is relatively cheap. It's more complex to set up than barcode scanning because you have to know specific gravities and stuff about what you're using. But it is a relatively cheap technology. Now, two cheap technologies to solve a complex pharmacy workflow problem are probably not what most vendors would like to sell because you can't charge as much for something that is not as complex. So you and I have both been on that vendor side and we'll just leave it at that. Yes. <laughs> We'll just, we'll just, we'll both we'll just, chuckle and we'll leave it at that. Yes. It, and we'll leave it at that. I would like to say though, I want, and I hope that companies in this space will make use of more pharmacists in the process of developing these, because I think you're right. I think there's a great opportunity to improve some of these systems that are currently what I would consider a minimum product set. As you've alluded to, um, there are only two is that right? Two commercially available products outside of the robotics that offer uh, gravimetrics at this moment. The rest of the other six or seven products do not even offer it. And some, a couple of the companies that I talked to when Mark and I were doing our research for the report, said they have no intention of implementing gravimetrics. Now, to me, if you have no intention of, of implementing gravimetrics or if you haven't looked at the possibility of it, that means that you haven't done your research and your job. So. Uh, that's it. Another, one other thing, which I thought was interesting, we've been discussing for, we've been talking for about a half an hour here, 
and we'll respect everybody's time and we'll, we'll uh, cut it off here shortly. But neither one of you, you or I, have mentioned or discussed robotics. Why do you think that is? What, what's your general, you know, three sentence, one paragraph thought on the use of robotics in this space? I think robotics are great. I think they're in their first generation. And once they become mature, I think they will help a lot. But in the places where I've seen them implemented, they're only implemented selectively. And I was, you're still left with a very high percentage of the compounded sterile products being made in a non-automated fashion. Exactly. I mean, you hit it on the head. So uh, researching robots, uh, the, the low end of the scale is I, I, I went to a hospital that only had two drugs from their formulary in the robot, two, two drugs. And on the high end, we found one that had 12. Now you're talking uh, 10% or less of your IV formulary being used in the robot. We came across one hospital that had uh, invested quite heavily in robotics, and they were they had about six drugs in their formulary uh, in their robots, and that's that's comical to me because you've dropped an inordinate amount of money into implementing and developing and using these uh, semi-automated robots because they're not fully automated. You still have to have somebody manage the inventory and somebody move in, things in and out. They are not a completely automated system. And they are clearly not getting their return on their investment. And that's so my opinion is exactly uh, we're in kind of the same frame of mind on that. I will say, though, that the best implementation of robotics that I have seen is at UCSF. UCSF's pharmacy is really their IV room, their, their sterile compounding area is really one of a kind. But even they had some interesting, very informative things to say about robotics and I think they've learned a lot. You know, I think they went into doing things a certain way and came out the other side doing them slightly differently because it didn't work out the way they thought. Jerry, I think we've had a good discussion. And in my mind, one of the things that we haven't discussed is um, what really should be the ideal IV workflow management solution. We've mentioned that Barcode scanning is good, gravimetrics good. I think we need to talk about what really should be in between those two technologies in the IV room. Because I think, I think we are using way too much technology than we really need. I think we've overly documented a process beyond its possibilities. And when I think about pharmacists who are using some of these uh, image cap capturing workflow solutions, I, I wonder how good they are going to be checking those images day in and day out, day to day, over time. And a, a friend of mine gave me an analogy that I think is quite apropos. And it supports my belief that I don't think you can be good at just checking images over and over for a long period of time. And that after a while, it's going to resemble what you and I both grew up in when we were checking 24-hour unit dose bins. It's kind of a mind-numbing process. And really, truth be told, those 24-hour bins were probably as good as the technician that filled them. And it really didn't depend too much on the pharmacist that was doing the checking. 
because it's not something pharmacists were really good at doing on a day-to-day basis. And I think we've recreated that with some of our IV workflow solutions. Truth. There is a lot of truth in what you're saying. I was at a facility back east watching pharmacists verify uh, hundreds and hundreds of images in IVs. And they, to your point, they had been doing it for a couple of hours and they got to the point where they were clicking through the images without critical evaluation. Um, And on occasion, there were images that were actually, in my opinion, they were so poor uh, from lighting or blur or whatever the case may be that there was no value in, in checking them, but the pharmacist would click through anyway. So I, I, I agree. And uh, something that I mentioned in the last uh, podcast that I did when I was talking about the implementation of BD Cato at MD Anderson Hospital, that aha moment I had in terms of watching barcode scanning in combination with gravimetrics, you do have to ask yourself, and I think it's a valid question, what is the value of imaging in that situation? What, what are you adding? What are you getting out of it? Personally, I don't think you're adding very much at all. I came to the same conclusion. And I don't know, I, I'd love to hear somebody else's opinion, right? Uh, argue the point with me or discuss the point, I guess is, is more appropriate. Discuss the point with me. What's the value of it? Because if you're going to talk to any of these companies that are making a product that only has barcode scanning and imaging, obviously they have an opinion, right? They have a dog in the fight, and and they have an opinion on why they're doing it that way and maybe why they're not doing something else. There should be a great discussion around why BD Cato has introduced cameras to their system when they're using barcode scanning and gravimetrics. I actually have an answer for that, but they they basically bent to the market demand and the clamor here in the United States. I mean, their system was available in Europe as is. It was barcode scanning and gravimetrics, and they have a, a large presence over there, and everybody was very happy with it and using it. They came into the United States, and as a whole, we don't understand, pharmacy doesn't understand the value of the gravimetric scale in the hood in combination with something like barcode scanning. Look, if you scan a drug, and it's the correct drug, and you weigh that drug, and you weigh your final product, that's a pretty good indicator that you have the right drug and the, and the right amount. Uh, what what does the picture add? Well, it's, it's a good question. You and I are in agreement here, so, you know, we need somebody to jump in and, and uh, that has an opposite view and, and let us know their thought because I don't see it. I think, like I said before, I think we've been provided solutions that vendors think we want as a as a pharmacy community. The question is, are they the solutions that we need? And I think they play to a pharmacist, uh, a weakness that pharmacists have of wanting to document everything. I mean, we are great documenters. And I I think about the surgeon in the operating room. Are they going to be taking pictures of everything that they do during a procedure? Every cut, every stitch, every suture, inside, outside. Because if, if they followed the same principles that we're trying to follow in the IV room, they would be using video capture and documentation of everything that's done in the in the OR. And I don't think they're gonna do that. And I don't think they should do that either. There may be certain steps you wanna grab a shot of for documentation, but to actually document the workflow, like we're talking about, I think that's crazy. 
So I, I think at some point, uh, you're right, I agree. Uh, I think at some point, and we're slow to respond, but I think at some point we're going to have to find a happy medium. We're going to have to pull back in some areas, and we're going to have to change the way we do things. We have we have bent to the will of, for example, the USP 797, the guidelines are a good example. They were, they were uh, so far removed from what we were doing in the IV room that we've spent the last 10 years trying to catch up to those guidelines. And that's where we've put a majority of our efforts. When I go into hospitals and I, I talk to directors and operations managers about what they plan to do in the IV room, everything they're doing in the IV room is, uh, is designed to comply with something like 797 or 800. They don't, they don't even want to think about doing something else, like what I call doing the right thing. They don't even want to think about doing the right thing. And they'll quote all kinds of reasons for it. But the bottom line is they just aren't thinking about it in the right way, in my opinion. I mean, right. My opinion's always right. Right. That's how that's how that works. Mine is, too. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, uh, everybody's opinion is always right. I, that's how it works. So, hey, Ray, thanks for your time, man. I appreciate it. It's been great talking with you. I hope we can. I hope that we have an opportunity maybe to go into some more depth about what the ideal IV workflow solution should be. I would love that. So are you are you softly committing to another podcast? I am. I would I would love that. That would be great. So uh, I'll grab you offline and we'll pick a time because I bet you I bet you there's a lot of people that would like to hear uh, what's up in that brain of yours. So could be dangerous. <laughs> it could be. All right, everybody, thanks for listening, and until next time, I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.